If you've been visiting us, uh, we're on a series through the book of Mark's Gospel and sharing uh, really about the, the power of Mark's Gospel. And as we arrive at this moment and as we get ready to, um, to, to look at chapter 8, really this is the end of the first act. It's the beginning of the second act as we start to move forward and understand what is being communicated and what is being said. But here is a pivotal moment in the book of Mark as we move forward. And as you look at the book of Mark, understand that it is building and building towards the great climax. It is communicating the truth. And this is the moment where we had, we've been through the journey. Uh, we've seen Jesus perform miracles. We've understood the message of how we need to trust God in the storm and how we need our hearts to be right, the right soil within our lives, how we need to live in the Sabbath rest how we need to know God's forgiveness at work within our lives. And we've moved our way from chapter 1 and all the way through each chapter, looking at the different moments. Uh, Starting off with the great call in chapter 1 to follow Jesus. To not be moderate in our call, but be fanatical, but fanatical in the right way. Fanatical about love. Fanatical about kindness. Fanatical about being that person who serves Jesus with all our heart. Chapter 2, we have to see our sin before we can really see our Saviour. Chapter 3, we understand the power of the Sabbath, that we want to live in that shalom, in that deep rest, and understand that in our lives. Chapter 4, about the heart and the soil, that our heart is critical to the kind of harvest that we want to know in our lives. And at the end there of, uh, of that great chapter, we see Jesus speaking to the storm, and, and that our faith is strengthened, not because of how much faith we can develop, but it's about the object of our faith. And the object of our faith is always Jesus. And then, of course, God's timing is perfect. When we hear about the story of Jairus' daughter and the moment when God turns up and heals and does that miracle and how He wakes that little girl up and as he wakes that little girl up, holds her by the hand and says, come on, honey, time to get up. And when you have Jesus Christ and he has you by the hand, not even death has power over your life. And of course, uh, we're looking again at the great chapter 6 when we know about the sending out and, and the multiplication of, of the food and the walking on the water. And, um, and chapter 7 about what makes us clean and unclean. And here we are in chapter 8. So let's start to read at verse 27 of chapter 8. And Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around Caesar's, Caesarea and Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? This is the critical question we have to keep asking ourselves and remember. Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And what is Jesus about? Who is Jesus? 
And, and in your life and in my life, who is Jesus really to you in your life? You may have come to church this morning and you may not really know who Jesus is. He may not be that saviour within your life. You may be wondering, you know, who he is. And this was a question. Jesus asked his disciples, now, who do you think I really am? Who do you think I am at this moment? Who do people say I am? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am? What about you? Who do you believe that I am? Who in your life at this moment, sat in Kelowna, do you believe who Jesus Christ is? Do you believe he's just a good teacher? Do you believe he is somebody that came in history and existed? Who do you believe Jesus is? And Peter looked and answered, you are the Messiah. Wow! At that moment, the page erupts. At that moment, he's declaring, you are the Messiah. You are. What does this mean, the Messiah? Well, of course, it means literally the anointed one. And it literally means here, the one who God has poured oil on and has anointed as king, as ruler, as the mighty one. And when we get a revelation that he is the ruler, when we get a revelation that Jesus is the king, when we get a revelation that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the saviour of the world, that changes our lives, doesn't it? Who do you think Jesus is? We have to keep reminding ourselves in trusting God how great he is, how wonderful he is. He said, you're the Messiah. You can see it. Look, you are the Messiah. You are the one who the oil is being poured on and you are going to change everything. Even today, if a certain queen would die, then a ceremony would take place in Britain and, and a throne would be brought out after a thousand years on this same throne. And there in the middle of the service, oil would be poured over the next king of Great Britain, King Charles. I know many of us find that difficult to imagine, uh, particularly Fox News. Uh, but... The oil is poured over the king as it happened to Queen Elizabeth and it comes directly from the ancient scriptures and passed down of the Messiah and he will be an anointed one chosen of God to be present. And this comes from Daniel chapter 7 verse verse 13 and 14 when Jesus connects himself with the one who is the son of man that will come. The great redeemer, the great prophecy, the second temple, the great moment, and and the one that will come with all the angels, the one that will come gloriously from heaven, the one that will redeem. But notice what happens. The conversation's going rather well up until this point. And everything's good. And so he's, Peter's given the right answer. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about this. 
verse 31. He then began to teach them. So Jesus is now going to teach them. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must, after many things, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now imagine that. Peter just said, you are the Messiah. What are you teaching? This is nonsense. This is rubbish. Come over here. I rebuke you, Jesus. Imagine rebuking Jesus. I think he's taken on a bit too much at this moment. He rebukes him. He says, come on. Now the word in the Greek rebuke is the same word as is used when Jesus casts out demonic powers. So Peter's really going for it here. He's saying, Jesus, uh, what you're saying is, you know, with, with real authority, saying it's completely wrong. You can tell the fisherman's getting worked up here. You can tell that steam is coming out of his ears. You can tell that he's not happy at all. Why is Peter so upset? Well, the very idea of a Messiah suffering, mm, the very idea of a Messiah being killed, the very idea of the Messiah suffering in this way was a ridiculous concept to the Jews at that time. Now, for you theologians, oh yes, you know the great scriptures of Isaiah, of Isaiah 43, of Isaiah 44, of Isaiah 53, led like a lamb to the slaughter, uh, broken and, and cast aside. He was forsaken by all. You know those great scriptures. And you're going, of course, it makes complete sense. But those scriptures in Isaiah were never applied to the Messiah. They were never connected. And the idea that the the Messiah must become a servant, the idea that the Messiah must be rejected, the idea that the Messiah will not rule and reign and have all power, but he's going to lose all of this, is complete nonsense to them. And from a little boy, Peter's been told, the Messiah's coming. This is what the Messiah is, probably a babe in arms, you know, as he was um, rocked backwards and forwards. They may even have sang a little song about the Messiah coming to deal with the Romans. A Messiah coming that will free the nation again. A Messiah that will move. And maybe when he was a little uh, eight-year-old, he used to play that video game about the Messiah's revenge. And... <laughs> And, and coming out, and, 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 and when he was 15 years old, they were always talking that when the Messiah comes, I'm going to join the Messiah's militia, and we are going to fight. And here Jesus is saying, I must be rejected. I must be killed. I must, well, the idea of you being rejected, Messiah, this is nonsense. And of course, he rebukes him. And as he rebukes him, Jesus rebukes Peter. Uh, quite substantially, actually. Let me just give you a bit of advice. Don't argue with Jesus on many matters. 
He's got the truth. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. They're having a rebuking time here. Peter goes for it, then he's bitten off a little bit more than he can chew because Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, says, Get behind me, Satan. That's heavy. Why do you say this? Because you're thinking it from man's perspective, I'm thinking it from God's. You do not have in mind the concerns of God because God is up to something a lot more than we can imagine. God is about to birth the kingdom that will change the world. God is about to do something to redeem the world. You see, he's not just interested in kicking Rome out of Israel. He's not interested in establishing the nation of Israel like the time of Solomon and David. He's interested in rebuking and defeating the power of evil and Satan and death and sin in the world. God's about a great redemptive story. Come on. But this scary word, there's a scary word here. It's must. You must, they must be rejected. I must be killed. I must go through this. I must face this agony. What is driving this text? What is driving this is the love of God that is sending the Son of God to die on the cross so that you and I can be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. You must. It's a text about God's love reaching into the world. It's about God's love touching lives. It's about that he must go on a journey to redeem humanity. It's love. Now, we all love love, don't we? There's a lovely little book written by a theologian called William Van Stone. It's not in print anymore. Uh, William Van Stone uh, wrote his thesis. And in the middle of this thesis, he wrote about love. And the craving of the human heart to be loved unconditionally. We all want to be loved unconditionally, don't we? We talk about that. But Van Stone talks about the idea that within, within love, there are, there's false love and there's true love. False love is what we understand it. False love is, I guess, based around our personal need. You love me because of of what you give me. You love me because, and I love you because it's about uh, a selfishness. It's about, oh, you do that for me, therefore I love you. And we engage, and, and it's about my needs, not about you. It's about what you can give me. And that's a dysfunctional relationship in love. And, and human beings, he points out, can spot false love. We know when a marriage isn't working. We know that when it's centered around individual needs. We know when it's false because it's self-centered. It's, it's, it's non-sacrificial. It's conditional. You do this and you will receive my love. And it becomes a conditional relationship on which love is based. And so that can become negative. 
we are not vulnerable in those relationships. It becomes conditional. But we all love true love, don't we? You, we love to think about true love. You remember the first, first romance movie you ever saw. I don't know. The greatest ever is Casablanca, of course. You remember seeing that, at least some of you. And... A wonderful love story. Number one in all time. My first experience of a love story was when I watched, indeed, Love Story from the, the 1970s film. And there was Oliver who meets Jenny and they fall in love and the parents don't like her. So he's cut out of the will. And of course, he's at Harvard University. It all happens there. And, and they, they get a little apartment together. They fall in love and, and she becomes ill and, and she dies. And he holds her on the hospital bed and the camera zooms out. And there they are at the end of this 19th... Do you remember this? Oh, I just cried like a baby. And, oh, such love, such romance. It says that we're looking for that kind of unconditional love. Each of us is human beings. We're looking for this. We're looking for that, that unconditional love, that where we're loved for who we are, that where we're loved because unconditionally, when in a relationship, in marriage, there is that unconditional love. There is that acceptance of each other, even with our failings and our problems and our difficulties. And that is the very nature of true love. But what Van Stone points out is that the truth is, we may be seeking as human beings for total love and acceptance. But the truth is not even the best marriages here live on the basis of total, total surrender. Because we all know that we invest and we receive. We give into our marriages and people, you give back. We give into other relationships and we give back. That even the healthiest of relationships, to some degree, if we're truthful, are based upon a certain transaction and a certain ex acceptance, he points out. So where does this leave us? On one hand, you have false love. On the other hand, you have true love. And, uh, and there is us as human beings longing, just longing to be loved and accepted for who we are unconditionally. There seems to be something in human nature that says, I, I, I need to be accepted and loved for who I am and, and, and who I am in my life. And, and, and Van Stone points out that actually the truth is no human being can give us that unconditional love. The only place a man or a woman finds the heart, the unconditional love, the love that holds us, the love that gives us security, the love that will never fail us, that love is not found in each other. That love is found in the living relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord. Lord of Lords. That love is found in the Godhead. That love, and I spoke about the Trinity, didn't I? Is found in the Trinity, in the eternal love dance of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, where they 
know each other, where they love each other, where they exalt each other, where they they center on each other, where they defer to each other, where for all eternity they have glorified each other because we don't serve a lone God on his own. We serve one God who is triune, who dances that glorious dance of love, the Spirit, the Son, the Father. And when we enter into that relationship with the Godhead, we receive a revelation that I am loved, not because of what I do, not because of my actions. I am loved because I am loved by an eternal God. Now think about this. The irony of this is this, that if you enter into the eternal dance of being loved by a father who truly loves you unconditionally, I'm going to be a better husband, I'm going to be a better friend, I'm going to be a better person because my self-worth is not gained from everybody else around me. My self-worth is gained from God's eternal love for me. So it means that even with difficult people in life, you know, often our, our family members, it can be difficult, can't they? Our parents, our children... We, we want affirmation. We want this, our spouse, our relationships. We want this affirmation and this love. And yet somehow, sometimes rather than helping us, those relationships seem to damage us. But when, as one teenager wrote, she wrote, since I've got a revelation that God loves me for who I am, that I'm loved unconditionally, not because of my works, but because of his grace. And because he loves me so gloriously and so much, that now I, I can set up boundaries. I can deal with difficult people because I'm not always looking for acceptance from everybody else around. Because you and I know that is so tiring, isn't it? But I've got acceptance from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I have acceptance because God is good, because God is love, because God looks at me. And even though I may travel through the most challenging of relationship problems, I know that I am a son and a daughter of the living God. And we wear ourselves out trying to gain approval by everybody else around. And yet the very act of Christ hanging on the cross is all the approval you need. It's all the approval. And it all flows out that he must be rejected. He must die. He must rise again on the third day. He must take the penalty and the pain of sin in his life. Let's think about this for a moment. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is a powerful concept and we talk about it a lot at Willow Park Church. 
Somebody offends you and somebody wrongs you. And we've all got that. Lots of people have offended you and lots of people have wronged you. And there's people that you feel because they've wounded you with their words, with their actions, that they somehow, they owe you a debt, right? And, and with a debt, when you've been hurt, although we don't put it in this way, but somebody has to pay because you've been hurt. Let me put it another way. For those of us who've got mobile phones, I know this happens because I've got children with mobile phones. Hallelujah. And possibly the... Anyway, be quiet, Phil. Uh, but they've got mobile phones. The worst thing that happens... They're holding their mobile phones. They're at school. I don't even think they should be allowed to take their mobile phones to school, but they do. And, and they're at school and they're messing around with their best friends and a friend knocks into them and their, their iPhone flies out of the air, into the air. Do you know this scene? Drops onto the concrete. Everybody goes, oh, looks down, picks up the iPhone and it's cracked. And the friend goes, I'm so sorry. And the child that owns the iPhone goes, so am I. And then the friend goes, I'll pay for it. Yeah, $200. And, and the other friend goes, ah, no, it's all right. My dad's a pastor. And... <laughs> What's going on here? There's a transaction. We've got the broken phone. We've got the culprit that did it. We've got the, the child that had it. And we've got the loving father. Somebody's going to pay. <laughs> True? And it's a hefty amount to pay. So I come back, Dad, yeah? Oh, yeah, my friend knocked it out. And, oh. Well, who's going to pay? Well, did you take Apple Care out? No. Oh, mistake. Okay. Somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to do this. Because when something bad happens, somebody always has to pay. True? True? Somebody hurts you, somebody... Does it somebody usually has to pay? Either you pay, they pay, or somebody pays. Because that's, and we look for justice. We look for, for our revenge, maybe. We look that, well, you know, I'm going to call up the parents right now. I'll talk to those parents. Uh, yeah, but dad, you're the pastor. Yes, I know, but I can still talk to them. Can't I? Yes. Hello, parents. Your child destroyed my child's iPhone. 200 pounds, please. The conversation's not going to go well. Somebody's got to pay. I want them to pay. And then I'll go around to their house and knock on their door. Give me the money, right? Aren't you from Willow Park Church? Yes, I am. And give me the money. Somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to pay. But if I choose to forgive the teenager that did it to the phone, 
I choose to forgive my daughter or my son. Not trying to let you know who, which child it is. (laughs) If I choose to forgive and go, all right, that's going to hurt me. True? Oof, the sting. The sting of paying that money over. The sting's going to hurt me. But I choose, I must, I pay the price. And you see, forgiveness always hurts. It stings. You know I preach a lot about forgiveness. I teach a lot about forgiveness. I teach a lot about new beginnings. I teach a lot wherever you've come, whatever life you've been through. We're a church of grace and forgiveness and a church of redemption. But I know that if somebody hurts me and I choose to forgive them, it hurts inside. Because somebody feels the agony somewhere. Now think of the human race. He must die. He must be rejected. He must be crucified. We have broken the greatest iPhone history has ever seen. We have broken the greatest communication with the living God. Humanity has sinned. Humanity has fallen. Humanity, somebody must take the pain. Somebody must be judged. Something must happen. And that something, that somebody is the anointed Messiah that was nailed to the cross and cried out, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And he gave up the ghost and he completed the task and somebody took the agony. Somebody took the pain. Somebody took the the failure of humanity and felt the pain. And that somebody was Jesus Christ. And you get all upset when somebody doesn't talk to you. And you live a life And I do get so caught up and we forget, we forget that he paid it all. He must, he must die, it says. He must. So where does this leave us? Well, practically, The irony of this little bit of teaching is that when you take the pain, give the forgiveness, release the debt, you're not going the way of evil, you're going the way of God's forgiveness. And you're more likely to redeem the situation with that offence by receiving and, and giving forgiveness than you are if you're all about revenge. That's really important because for some of us, we've got to be now release some debts of people that have hurt us and let them go. You say it hurts. Forgiveness always hurts. It always hurts. But it's worse. The forgiveness may hurt for a moment or so, 
But unforgiveness hurts for a lifetime. It's like a man, it's like you drinking poison and watching the person you hate, expecting them to drop dead. The poison will kill you. The poison of unforgiveness. But God's love is so vast. Somebody had to pay it. Somebody had to do it. Somebody always has to pay. And Christ did it for you. That means his love is so immense. So don't wear yourself out by trying to gain affirmation, people-pleasing of all around us, from everybody else. Gain your eternal affirmation from the Father heart of God that loves every one of us. Your security, your future, your love comes from the Father. From the Father in your life. From the Father. And if you get into and understand this and connect with the Father's heart, amazingly, you become a better person. You become a better wife and husband. You become a better friend. You become a more effective employee. Because you're not trying to please the world. You live for an audience of one. That's Jesus. And he's paid the price for you. So this is part one of a two little two-part series in, in, in Mark. Because Jesus goes on to teach about picking up your cross and what that means. He goes on to teach about, about us connecting some of the most powerful verses in the text we can experience in chapter 8 next week. But let me encourage you to bathe in the knowledge. Somebody had to pay. He paid it all. So live live with grace. Live with blessing. Receive his forgiveness with joy. And maybe you've never heard this message. Well, Today, you can connect with Jesus' love and be forgiven and be saved. You can know a new beginning. You can rediscover a closeness with God in your own life. Maybe some of you, you come here and you think your life has failed. You've made mistakes. You've got broken relationships. You think there's no hope for you, no beginning No, 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 no. I don't know where you've come from or what you've been through or what you've faced, but this message is for you, that you are loved and he paid the price. Your cell phone is smashed, but he paid the price for you. He put it, he's going to put it back together. He took the pain for each one of us. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Search your heart now. Search your heart. Christian,
feel very compelled by the Holy Spirit to say, in the light of this message, you realize that you're not living a life worthy of what Christ did for us in eternity. And you're missing the overwhelming knowledge of God's love. We call it justification, actually. You can't earn anything. And I've preached on justification, but you are justified not by anything you can ever do because you're dead to your sins and dead to faith, but it's a free gift from God and you are loved. So can I ask you now, as we sing this final song in a moment, to rededicate your whole life to Christ. Get back into serving him. Get back into Christian community and get committed to the work of the Savior in your life. But maybe now, you're not a Christian. There's a lot of people away at church. It's the beginning of the holidays. But you know you've wandered in here and you need to be saved. You need to be forgiven. You need to give your life to Jesus. Even doubting the love in your life. Then give your life to Jesus. Lord Jesus, this is what I prayed when I became a Christian. Lord Jesus, I am sorry for my sin. And I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to come into my life and change me. I give myself to you. As you gave yourself for me on the cross... I hand my life over. As you paid the price, I received the forgiveness. I make you Lord of my life and choose to be disciple. Choose to be disciple of you, Lord. I follow you now. For a moment, as every head's bowed, you're following Jesus. And this morning, I'm not going to embarrass you, but you're saying, Pastor Phil, you made me think, you made me laugh for a moment, and you told me that I needed to get right. And Pastor Phil, right now, I prayed that prayer to give my whole life over to Jesus. If that is you, then just slip your hand up and put it down again. And by slipping up your hand, you're saying, pray for me. God bless you. God bless you. God bless. God bless. I get right with God this morning. God bless you. See, God's saving souls this morning. Anybody in the balcony? Raise your hand. Say, yes, I give. My God bless you. God bless. Well, it may be the beginning of a holiday, but the Lord is saving souls this morning. Amen. Lord, I pray for every hand raised that says either I'm getting right with God or receiving salvation. Lord, I pray 
that Lord, now you will engage with them. Lord, now that you will fill them. That Lord, that salvation will come to them as they choose you. Above all, in the name of Jesus, I ask. Come, Lord. Come, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. And for all of us as Christians, may we connect with the greatest love that enables us to love everybody else, the love of God. May I know the love in my heart like I've never known it before, the love of God of heaven. The Father's love, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.